Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to be with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of ours. There should be one in the rack underneath the seat somewhere near you. If you're using one of those Bibles, the page number will be up on the screen, uh, or you can just look it up on your phone or Google it or whatever you need to do. But we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, if you are joining us for the very first time this morning, as I said earlier, welcome. Uh, we're super glad that you're here. Um, let me just catch you up really briefly on what we're doing. Um, so we are in week five of a series where we are just walking straight through the book of First Peter in the Bible. And this book, in actuality, was a letter written by a guy named Peter to followers of Jesus that were sort of spread across the ancient world in a lot of different places. And in this letter, what Peter is primarily trying to do is help these followers of Jesus figure out how to interact with the society around them. So they were living in a culture that was not all that friendly to Christianity uh, and in some ways was even hostile to or at least suspicious of Christians. And so Peter wants them to learn how to live well in that type of environment. And we said from the very beginning that we are also trying to learn from Peter's instructions. To, to be sure, our society is not quite as hostile to Christianity as maybe theirs was back then, but there's still plenty that we can glean from what he writes to these followers of Jesus. Uh, just as one example, if you follow the news or social media at all, you have probably picked up on the fact that Christians could often use a lot of help on how to relate better to the society around them. There's an example of that almost every week about how they're not doing that well, right? And so if nothing else, we should be able to at least glean some principles from what Peter talks about in this particular letter. So we're letting Peter teach us, just as he taught these early followers of Jesus, how to live faithfully and helpfully and missionally in that type of cultural environment. So in today's passage specifically, what we're going to cover this morning Peter is going to turn his attention to talking about the church. Now, it's interesting because the word church is not used anywhere in that passage that we just heard read, but it's obvious that that is precisely what Peter is talking about here. Peter is going to get into specifically what the purpose of the church is in a cultural setting, in a society like they found themselves in. Now, I should probably stop and clarify at this point in the teaching that when I say this passage is about the church, I don't mean it's about what we're doing right now. That, according to the Bible, is one thing that church does, but this is not the church, okay? I also don't mean that this passage is about some sort of spiritual organization that dispenses religious goods and services to people. That's a, another understanding of the church. I think a lot of people tend to think of the church almost like it's like a, this spiritual drive-through window where I get my Jesus for the week and then I continue on about my life. I think that's some people's understanding of the church. 
And this passage is not really about either of those things. Now, each of those views of church probably carry a fragment of the truth on some level. For instance, here at City Church, this event, the thing that we're doing right now, our Sunday gatherings, are massively important to us. They are massively important to who we are, but they're not church, if that makes sense. Uh, On the other hand, I sincerely hope that we are providing things of value to you as it relates to your personal relationship with Jesus. I hope we're providing things that help you in that arena of life. I personally hope you like the teaching. I probably care about that a little bit too much at times. But at the same time, that is not church. The church is not an organization. It's not just a 501c3 that puts out religious goods and services. That's not the fullness of what church is either. So it's not that either of those understandings are completely off. It's not that they're completely off base, but at the same time, neither of them capture the fullness of what the scriptures teach us that church is. So the church, just if we were to kind of glean an operational definition from Peter's writings, the church, according to Peter, is something like a group of people who represent God to the world. A group of people who represent God to the world. And what Peter is going to insist in the passage that we're studying through today is that the church is not this optional thing over here to the side that we can participate in or not participate in as we choose, but rather that the church is absolutely central, absolutely vital to our personal relationship with Jesus, and it is absolutely central to God's purposes in the world. That's the point that Peter is going to make, and this passage is kind of meant to drive all of that home. So, with all of that set up, uh, we're going to frame up what Peter says in this passage in three sections. It's funny, I've been doing a lot of three-point teachings lately. I don't know if I'm like slowly evolving into a Presbyterian preacher or something. There could be worse things, right? But for some reason, they've all been three points lately. So no different today. Three sections to this passage that we'll kind of divvy it up into. First, we'll talk about the purpose of the church. Then we'll talk about the foundation of the church. And then we'll talk about the ministry of the church. That's where we're headed this morning. So first up, let's talk about the purpose of the church. Right off the bat in our passage, Peter gives us a word picture for understanding what the purpose is of this thing called the church. So take a look with me in the passage, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So obviously this is talking about Jesus here. As you come to him, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be, whole, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let's stop right there for just a bit. Peter says in, this, in these two verses that the church is a spiritual house. That's the language that he uses. And then he says that this house that he's talking about is built out of followers of Jesus that he refers to as living stones within this sort of metaphor or word picture. Now, just a little bit of Bible language nerddom for you if you're up for it. If you're not up for it, I'm probably going to do it anyway. I just always like to preface it with that. But uh, a little bit on that word house. When Peter uses the word house, that word in the original language is actually a really interesting word because it has two different meanings depending on the context. So sometimes that word house means exactly what it sounds like in English. It means a house, as in the physical structure that people live or reside in. 
Sometimes it means that, but it also sometimes means household, as in the group of people, the family that live in said house. So that invites the question, which one is Peter referring to here? Does he mean that we are a house or does he mean that we are a household? I think the answer to that question in this context is yes, right? He's talking about both. It's sort of a play on words if you want to think about it that way. On one level, he is referring to us being a new house, a new structure where God's presence resides and is put on display to the world. No doubt in his mind is the idea of the temple, the physical structure where God himself resided in the Old Testament. For people back then, if you were living in that era of church history, then the temple was the place that you went to encounter God. That was pretty much the only option if you wanted to do that. But by Peter using this word in his passage with a double meaning, he's actually making the point that followers of Jesus, the family of God, we are now that place. We have now become what the temple used to be, the place where people go to encounter who God is. In other words, God's presence no longer resides in a place, but rather in a people, in God's people. That's the point that Peter is making. And these two different ideas, us being a house and a household, I think they actually work in tandem with one another. In other words, we can only be a house if we are becoming a household, We can only become a a temple where God's presence resides if we are living life together as a family. So Karen Jobes, who I think is one of the best commentators and scholars on the book of 1 Peter, she actually puts it like this, commenting on this exact passage in her commentary. She says, The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others. Do you see what she's saying? So in our day, we've kind of created this new category of being a Christian where being a part of a church is at best optional, if not completely unnecessary. We've kind of created this new category. So the belief is I've got me and I've got my personal relationship with God and really that's all that matters at the end of the day. But if I decide that I need a little bit of extra help in my personal relationship with God, well, the church is available to me. But there's really, it's not necessary. It's not needed for me to be a part of that. That, I think, is the functional belief when it comes to church for an awful lot of American Christians. But according to Karen Jobes and according to Peter and according to basically all of the New Testament authors, that's not really how the Christian life works at all. To be a Christian, in her words from that quote, means coming into relationship with others through the church. In other words, the church is not this nameless, nebulous entity over here that is there to just help and serve my personal relationship with Jesus. Rather, the church is God's representation of himself on planet Earth, and my individual relationship with Jesus really only makes sense when it's a part of that puzzle. Does that make sense? So I was thinking about this, oddly enough, uh, the last time I was at a Tennessee football game with my son. Uh, If you're not a sports fan, hang with me. This is not a sports analogy. This is a band analogy. Just didn't want to lose you from the get-go. So I was thinking about this the last time we were at one of the football games. Uh, For those of you that have been to a Vols football game, 
you know that what they now do is, uh, I think an hour or two before the game starts, if you stand on the ped walkway, what will happen is that the band will come by playing Rocky Top on their way into the stadium. Greatest song to ever exist in the history of the world, as we all know, obviously. But they come by and they play Rocky Top. But what I don't think I had thought about until this particular day that we were listening to the band is that when the band plays Rocky Top, not every instrument plays the same part. So we were walking by, and the reason I realized this is because we were walking by and we would hear, you know, the trombones and then the trumpets and then the flutes. And when it got to the flutes, the flutes came by and they were playing nothing that even resembled Rocky Top at all, but it was their part of the song. And my son, my four-year-old wit, looks up at me and goes, Dad, why are they not playing Rocky Top? Like he felt wronged by the fact that they were playing some other song that he had never heard before in his life. But he was kind of right, because if all you listened to was the flutes part of that song, it sounds nothing like Rocky Top at all. But what happens is each of these different instruments play a piece of the melody. They play a version of the melody, or maybe a harmony or something altogether different. And when you put whatever it is, you know, 240 or so instruments together all at once, it all makes up this composition that is Rocky Top. And so in the same way... Our individual relationships with God really cannot be what they were meant to be outside of them being plugged into the church. God's purpose is that our individual relationships would plug into the entire entity that is the church, and it's only then that they can become what they were made to be. It's only then that our individual relationship with God can be what it was intended to be. That's how it works. And then to drive all of this home in our passage, Peter actually reiterates a different, a similar point in a different way. He uses yet another word picture. He changes metaphors entirely because apparently his English professor never taught him not to mix metaphors. He moves into this next image of the followers of Jesus being a priesthood. That's the language he uses next. So if you're following along with our Bible reading plan this year, uh, you actually read about the priesthood, I think like three or four weeks ago in the book of Leviticus. So see, there was a purpose in you reading Leviticus. I know as you were reading it, you thought, I don't understand why I'm reading this. If nothing else, you found out what a priesthood is, right? And so this is what Peter is referring to here. He's talking about the priesthood in the Old Testament. Now the, the job of the priesthood, their role was to represent God to the people around them. That was their purpose. They were this select group of people who were chosen to represent God to the rest of the nation of Israel. But what Peter is saying here is that now all of us, not just a select few of us, but every single follower of Jesus is now a part of that priesthood. We are all now called to represent God to the people around us in the world. So listen, practically, Whether you are here today and you are an accountant or a mechanic or a student or a stay-at-home parent or a graphic designer or whoever and whatever it is that you are and do, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are actually a part of God's plan to make himself known to the world. No matter what it is that you do, you may just also happen to work as an accountant or a parent or whatever it is. This is what you were made for. This is your purpose alongside every other follower of Jesus in the world to make God known through our life together. That is what we were put here for. 
You were designed to be a part of the spiritual house that God is building. But to keep moving, next we find out about the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church. So if we together are going to represent this spiritual house, if we're going to show God off to the world like a spiritual house would, what exactly is that house supposed to be built on in the first place? What's that house's foundation? That's what Peter transitions into next. So take a look with me, picking it up in our passage in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus, Peter says, is the cornerstone of this house that we're being built into. For those of you that were around last year during our Church as a Family series, you probably remember one of those Sundays we talked about what a cornerstone was exactly. But for those of you who weren't here that time last year, which is probably a lot of you, let me just unpack what Peter is referring to so you can kind of get the picture that he's offering to us. So here's the idea behind a cornerstone. Basically, back then, when you began construction on any type of building that you were putting together, you would have a stonemason chisel out something called a cornerstone. Now, that cornerstone would be put in place first before you built anything else in the entire structure. And that cornerstone sort of served as a guide for the rest of the building. So if the angles on the cornerstone were off, the angles on the entire building were going to be off. If the proportions in the cornerstone were off, the proportions of the entire building were going to be off. The cornerstone was sort of the reference point for the entire rest of the structure. So part of Peter's point is that if we are going to get this thing called the church right, if we're going to execute it the way it was meant to be executed in the world, and then we have to get the cornerstone right. It has to be built on the right cornerstone in the first place. And the right cornerstone, Peter says, is Jesus. The church has to be built on Jesus or else the whole thing is going to be off. Which means here at City Church, we don't just want our songs to be about Jesus. We don't just want the end of our teachings to be about Jesus. We want Jesus and his character and his way of life to infiltrate every single thing that we do as a church. We want everything to be modeled after Jesus. We want to love like Jesus loved. We want to speak like Jesus spoke to people. We want to accept people the way that Jesus accepted people. We want our church to be built not on a style or a preference or a certain philosophy of ministry, but rather on Jesus, who is the true cornerstone of the church. That's what we're after. So here's one thing that I felt like the Spirit has been doing in me, just as I've spent the past few weeks sort of pouring over this passage and just asking him what he might have me say and what he he might have me learn in the first place. I feel like over and over, the Holy Spirit has been saying to me as I've been reading this, the church is built on Jesus, not on us. The church is built on Jesus, not on us. That's just been on repeat in my head since I've been studying this passage. So on a personal level, for me, This is something I have to check myself on very often. I want to be sure that I am never building city church around me. 
And to be honest, that would be an easy thing to do, right? As one of the leaders of the church, it would be easy to build this whole thing around me and what I think church should be. And to be honest with you, plenty of churches do exactly that. Plenty of churches build their entire model of ministry around one person's gifting or one person's talent. Here at City Church, we fight with everything in us against that tendency because we don't believe that's how the church should be put together. So just to kind of unpack this a little bit in terms of its implications for us at City Church. One of the ways that we try to fight against it is that no one here at City Church on staff has the title senior pastor. Nobody gets to call all of the shots at our church. I am one of the leaders in authority at City Church, but I'm also under authority at City Church. I'm under the authority of our other pastors. I'm under the authority of our teaching team that meets every week and tells me what I should and shouldn't say from up here on stage, which is a good thing because I would say some really dumb things if it was only up to me. Uh, I am under the authority to a certain degree of the people in my life group. I choose to put myself under the authority of other pastors in our city and glean from their wisdom on how our church should be led. So I'm one of the leaders in authority, but I'm also under a lot of authority. And that's one of the ways that we try to guard against me calling all the shots or any of our pastors calling all the shots and building this church around them and their preferences and their way of thinking. But additionally, I felt like it was worth putting that same question before all of us, before everybody in this room. I feel like it's worth asking for every single person here today, are there ways that you are tempted to build the church around you? I think it's very easy for us when we start to come around a new church or a new community of believers, it's easy for us to show up and pretty immediately start thinking, hmm, this church doesn't feel like it's built to my personal specifications. It's easy for us to take that posture from the get-go. It's easy to start thinking, well, I wouldn't approach that like that, and I wouldn't approach this like this, and I would do discipleship differently, and I would do groups differently, and I would do preaching differently, and I would do worship differently. And before long, if we're not careful, we begin to grow really, really frustrated and really, really resentful at all the things in the church that we're a part of that are just a few degrees off from how we feel like church should be. But with all the love in my heart for every single person in this room, can I just tell you the reason that things are not built to your specifications in the church? It's because you're not the cornerstone. You're not the standard by which to measure a healthy church. None of us are. Jesus is the cornerstone. The church is built around him and what he says the church should be. It's not built around any single one of us. And listen, it is such a good thing that the church is not built on you or on me for that matter because you know what would happen if it was built around us? Things would get really goofy really fast. We are not good cornerstones to build things on. For sure, we probably have some great ideas and some great ways of thinking about the church and we probably have some things that God is stirring in us for the church that we are a part of, whether that's here or somewhere else. But you know what we also have? We have biases, and we have blind spots, and we have sinful tendencies and inclinations in our heart. You know who doesn't have sinful tendencies? Jesus. And that's why the church has to be built on him and not on any of us. Now, 
I feel like I need to clarify when I say all that. Uh, I'm not talking about right and wrong things in a church, okay? So, like, if you're a part of a church and you think sin is bad and they don't really think sin is all that bad, like, get out of there fast and speak up by all means, right? Like, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that are not black and white but gray, I'm talking about things that are preferences. I'm talking about situations where you're a part of a church, whether it's here or somewhere else, and you think things should be done this way, and they think things should be done this way, and they're both biblical, faithful ways of going about church. If that is the case, I think we could learn from from taking the posture of Jesus, from learning that the church is not meant to be built around us. So just as a way of examining yourself in this regard, let me ask Is your mindset when it comes to church, man, I have so many things to teach this church. There are so many things that they could learn from me about how to do things better. And if they would just listen to my ideas, man, we would would really be going somewhere. Is that your posture? Or do you have a mindset that's more like, man, I bet I can learn a lot of things from the people here. Not just from the leaders, from everybody. I bet I can learn a lot of things from this community about how to go about church, about how to go about discipleship and all these things. And sure, I might have some ideas, I might have some input, and I'm sure we'll get to those things eventually. But first, I'm going to take the posture of a learner. I'm going to take the posture of a servant. And that's going to be my approach towards whatever community of believers I find myself a part of. And here's the thing. Having Jesus as our foundation, as our cornerstone, creates in us exactly that type of posture towards the church. Because Jesus himself took that posture. He, even though he was the author and sustainer of all things, Jesus took the posture of a servant. He took the lowest position. He humbled himself. Philippians 2 would say that Jesus humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, it would be impossible for someone to take a lower position, a more humble posture than what Jesus took in his time on earth. And Philippians goes on to say that it was because Jesus took that type of posture that God then exalted him as the name above every name. It was actually Jesus' humility that led to his exaltation. And if that was the posture of Jesus, if he took the posture of a servant, surely it should be the same posture in anyone who claims to follow Jesus. We should also take the posture and the approach of a servant. And specifically, it should be the posture from all of us towards our involvement in this thing called the church. That's part of what it means for Jesus to be the cornerstone. It means that his posture is the motivation for our posture. It's the model for ours. So Peter, in our passage, then goes on to point out just that, that it was actually Jesus' humility, specifically his willingness to endure even rejection, that led to him becoming the cornerstone of the church. The stone that the builders rejected, Peter says, has become the cornerstone. Now, just really briefly, I don't want us to miss this. Can you imagine the relief, the help that that brought the first century church to hear? These ancient followers of Jesus who were currently being ostracized and rejected by the society around them actively, for Peter to say to that group of people that they serve a Savior who was also rejected. 
Peter says, just like God built his church on the Savior that the world rejected, he will also build his church out of the people that society rejects. Last up, Peter talks about the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church. Finally, Peter helps us see how the church is to go about their purpose in the world. How do we accomplish the purpose that we've been given at a practical sort of hands-on type of level? For that, take a look with me at verse 9, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, and here's the part I want us to focus in on for our purposes, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here in the final couple verses, Peter makes the point that though Jesus was rejected and though we also will be rejected by the world at times, we remain God's royal priesthood. We are still the representatives between God and humanity and are therefore called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to the world around us. That is what we've been put on planet earth for as followers of Jesus. I've heard it put like this before. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. When it comes to making himself known to the world that so desperately needs to know him, God has given that task to the church. It's his one and only strategy. Now, that might make some of us ask, well, wait, doesn't God sometimes make himself known to the world in other ways? Like, what about miracles and signs and wonders? Doesn't God sometimes make himself known through those things? Absolutely he does. Who does he call to do miracles and signs and wonders primarily? The church. You might say, well, what about preaching and teaching? Like, doesn't sometimes God make himself known through people preaching and teaching about who he is? Absolutely. Who has he called to do the preaching and teaching? The church and leaders of the church. You might say, well, what about evangelism? Like, what about, you know, meeting people and telling them about Jesus? Absolutely. Who does he call to do evangelism? The church. This is God's plan for the world. This is how he plans to make himself known is through the church. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Now, listen, when I say that, I don't mean that a Sunday event or a spiritual organization is God's plan A. Okay, that's... That's not what we're after. I mean that a group of people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, I mean that is God's plan A in the world. A group of people who have been called out of darkness and into light and see it as their job to tell that story over and over again to the world around them. If the world around us is going to find the hope that is in Jesus, that is how it's going to happen. That is how it's going to go down. That is God's one plan. When it comes to God's plan for making himself known, he has chosen to give the church the priority. So let's just land the plane here this morning. I want to ask you a question. If the church is God's priority, shouldn't it also be ours? Shouldn't it also be ours? Shouldn't we also give the church priority? 
If the church being the church is God's one plan for the world, does my attitude and my posture towards the church reflect that plan that God has? Does my involvement, my level of participation in the life of the church reflect that reality? Do my weekly rhythms, the things that I give my time and my energy to on a regular basis, week to week, do those things reflect that priority? As a whole, is your current posture towards the church reflective of the importance that God has given it? God has pushed all of his chips in on the church. Have you pushed all of yours in is the question that we need to be asking. See, I think some of us are only in on the church insofar as it doesn't require too much of us. I think some of us are only in on the church insofar as it doesn't challenge us more than we would like to be challenged. We're only in on the church insofar as it gives us the friends that we want and none of the friends that we don't want. We're only in on the church in so long as it it doesn't infringe upon our preferences or our time or our money or our efforts. And maybe for some of us, we're only in on the church insofar as we get to define precisely what that church looks like according to our ideals. But to be honest, and again, I say this completely out of love, if we've got a whole bunch of internal conditions for our involvement in the church, that's not really being in at all. That, that's essentially asking God to build a church around us when what God is trying to do is build a church around Jesus and invite us into it. Now let me add, um, before we go any further in this, Let me add that I know for some of us, maybe we are hesitant towards the church personally because we've had some royally bad experiences with the church. Maybe the churches we've been a part of have done some harmful or even horrific things to to us or to the people that we love and care about. That unfortunately is way too common of a story in today's world and I want you to know I'm, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that that's a reality in our world. And if that's your story, I want you to know that there is room to be wrestling with that here at City Church. There's room to need some space to process all of that for sure. I can promise that we will do whatever we can to show you that we are worthy of your time and your trust and your energy. Now, we aren't perfect. I can't promise that we won't ever sin against you, just like you can't promise that you won't ever sin against the other people at City Church. But we can promise that we will strive to be a community built around Jesus, which means when we do sin against you, we will be quick to own it and apologize for it and work through it with you. And if you're willing to shoot for that alongside us, we would love to have you along for the ride, even if that's a difficult process. But all that said, that aside, for the rest of us in the room today, my guess is that it's not so much that we have baggage with the church. It's just that pretty much anything and everything seems more worthy of our time and our energy. And, that, and that's a problem because God didn't intend the church to be this optional thing off to the side for people with extra time on their hands. That's not what it is. He intended for it to be central, front and center to his purposes in the world. If you have a relationship to Jesus, you have a responsibility to the church. That's the way the scriptures would unpack it. 
Now, please do not hear this wrong. This is not about City Church. This isn't my annual sales pitch. Like, you're not going to walk out into the lobby and there's going to be sign-up forms for all of our volunteer teams and, like, an opportunity to sign up for recurring giving. None of that is about to happen, okay? This is not about City Church. This is not my attempt to guilt you. This is not my attempt to recruit more cogs into the City Church machine. None of that. City Church is a blip on the radar. In 100 years, City Church might not even exist, But the church, the global church, will still be God's plan to set things right in the world. That'll still be the case for bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the here and now. God will still be up to that. So my point is, do you want to be in on that? Do you want to be in on the thing that God is building? Do you want to be the temple, the royal priesthood, the holy nation? the people for God's own possession, do you want to be a part of God's plan to set things right in the world? That's what we're after. And we're just a small piece of that puzzle here. But we're inviting you to be a part of it. So we're gonna transition in just a second into a time of response. So I I, I don't know, I don't have any way of knowing what the Spirit might be up to in your heart right now. Maybe some of this is clicking with you on some level. Maybe you're realizing as we go through all of this, through the words in this passage, that that you're not all in on the church like God calls followers of Jesus to be, but you want to be. Maybe that's what the Spirit is doing in you. And if that's the case, maybe you want to spend some time just owning up to that, confessing that to God, and then asking him or other people what your next steps might be to move in that direction. Or maybe for you, you're realizing that there is actually baggage in your relationship to the church. And maybe for you, that's the biggest barrier right now. The biggest barrier is that things have been done by the church that have hurt you personally, that they have wronged you personally in some way. And so maybe the best thing for you to do today is to ask someone to pray over you about that reality, to ask them to help in that regard, to ask them to process through all of that with you in healthy ways. Or maybe you came in here today wrestling with something altogether different. Maybe it's nothing connected to any of this and maybe there's something massive going on in your life right now that is just crazy difficult or crazy overwhelming or crazy depressing or whatever it is and you just wanna have someone pray over you as it relates to that. Whatever it is that you need to let happen this morning, I just pray that we will allow the space for God to do those things, that we'll take the steps that we need to take, knowing that God is with us the whole way. So whatever it is this morning, we want you to have space to wrestle with that well. So let me pray for us, and then we'll have some time to just do that.